Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 57 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 57, we will be starting with our standard material overview. We'll talk about 2 Peter chapter 1 in its grand entirety of 21 verses. And then we will actually be going through a couple of listener questions, some very interesting listener questions. One comes from Luke from CMD about homonyms. And then we also have a listener question from Matthew from P&W about how to prepare for Great West. And we'll actually talk about Great West a little bit uh, in terms of some uh, quick little updates about what's going on there. And we'll talk about, a bit about the Presbyterian uh, P&W Bible Quizzing Program. I had the distinct honor and privilege of meeting the uh, Presby Program's uh, district coordinator, or their equivalent of a district coordinator. I'm not sure exactly what her title is. Uh, quiz boss, basically. And uh, I got introduced at our, our tour at our, our last meet, and it was really interesting chatting with her. And she uh, tossed me over a copy of their rule book because we're in discussions for how the next version of CBQZ could actually work for the Presby program as well, uh, since the the whole goal of, of the CBQZ rewrite is to uh, make it a lot more flexible and robust for different programs. So we're in that kind of discussion. But one of the interesting things about the Presby program in looking through the rulebook is it's very, very different from CMA. And there's some kind of interesting, curious things I wanted to share that might be interesting for CMA to, well not necessarily considered. They're just really, really weird from our perspective, but very interesting and could have some interesting ideas related to stuff that we do in, in CMA. So with that said, let's jump into Second Peter chapter one. And uh, Scott, what are your thoughts here? Let's hit the logistics. 21 verses. So go nuts, quote specialists and chapter verse reference specialists. You can really get in quick on those. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Ten of the 21 verses are key within PNW. Good half. Again, good mix of uniqueness from global down to some chapter verse reference questions. I see some good ones in 14 and 15. I will what? Um, make every effort to what? You will what in verse 19 might be a chapter verse reference. No, definitely a chapter verse reference. For this very reason, I actually think that very makes it key and not a chapter reference. But then there's going to be a lot of really good one-word chapter reference questions, having what, what desires, what promises, to those who what, perhaps, or, step, or participate what, participate in what, a lot of good options there. Question for you, Griffin, how would you write a multiple answer on the list in verses 5, 6, and 7? If I said, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to what, is the would the answers to that one be just the and twos, like goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, like the first of the pairs in essence? Or is there a way to write it like where all the pairs are required for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, what, or something of that nature? Yeah, I, I don't think, let's see, I think you would have to, you couldn't do it directly off of like faith, goodness, and so forth, because they're sort of like, they're all vectors, right? Like, you you know, add A to B and then add B to C and so forth down the line. So for this very reason, make every effort to what? Uh, well, every effort to add what? I think if you stopped at add, you can make it work. 
for this very reason, make every effort to add to what? Yeah, I think you could you could include the the two or even just add what, and I think that could work either well. I mean, certainly the two is repeated everywhere, so you would generally not want to include it in the question. But I think if you did, it's not the end of the world. I think it still flows as a multiple answer. Um, now, granted, I'm I'm haven't really studied this fully yet, so I'm just guessing. Sure, I think that's an interesting one though, because there's lots of ways to write it that probably wouldn't make sense to include all those answers. And even though including all the answers from verses five, six, and seven could be quite lengthy, I think that that's totally valid and not of a length that would cause me to not write that question. Yeah, totally understandable. Well, any other thoughts on it? Let's see. There's a lot of really good global unique words in verses six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know how many of them are really well set up to be at the beginning of a question, which is what I generally focus on. So like the word ineffective in verse eight, it's really, really difficult to write that near the beginning of an interrogative question. And because of that, there's less value to, to a quizzer really focusing on that word and knowing where it is in the material. Whereas in verse 16, cleverly, like that's absolutely going to be the, the start of an interrogative question. And so making sure you know where that word is and what the answer will be and being ready for the sound of clev. If you jump right at that point, you might not think of cleverly right offhand, but if you spend an extra second thinking about it, you will. Perhaps from majestic glory, the mudge, madge or mudge could be a weird sound if you jump on two syllables. I always liked to figure out what that sound is going to be in the middle of a word because you are often jumping in the middle of a word. Yes, indeed. Is 17... 17 is not a, yeah, 17 is a, a standard key verse, not a uh, finish this or anything in PNW. So um, that quote therein is not something to be memorized separately. I believe so, because we have it where finish this questions can be asked as quote questions, but they cannot also be asked as finish the verse questions. Right. This, this verse is the, where you're kind of deciding which is better, where there's a lot of really good information in the verse before we get to the quote. So sometimes there's almost nothing, like he said. And that's tailor-made for a finish this because we don't need to start a finish the verse with he said. But here, there's a lot of really good information up front. And so I, I definitely like having this as a plain finish the verse. I would be interested, though, for a world where you can write something as a finish this and a finish the verse. I mean, I guess that world exists now. We just don't do it. But I think this one could work as both. Yes, indeed. Well, I don't have really anything all that much to add here. Um, it sort of it seems like we're talking about a lot of the same sort of stuff as we do every week. Um, there's a fair bit of unique words clustered within. Something that kind of draws my attention is the self-control in uh, repeated twice in verse six, and the mutual affection repeated twice in verse seven. Uh, it kind of draws my eyes to those kind of things. They sort of stand out. But otherwise, it's fairly easy to memorize here. I think part of the part of the key thing here that we're also talking about in terms of references, uh, make sure you're very careful about where which book you're memorizing from when you're you're committing the the references to memory, right? So don't just think one seven, think second Peter one seven to disambiguate it from first Peter or Hebrews. That that you know, we saw a couple of errors pop up, uh not terribly frequently, but if uh here and there at the lighthouse meet recently where the errors were, you know, somebody was in First Peter when they should have been in Hebrews or vice versa. So just keep it in mind as you're uh as you're working through this. 
I always like to say the full reference, especially in these years of multiple books. Just always say First Peter one seven, Second Peter one seven, and it just helps your mind grab onto that as different. Yeah, in some ways, I think I try to mentally see it as three numbers in a sense, where Hebrews is like a zero. Um, so I'm thinking like a zero one two, a one one two, or a two one two, that kind of thing. If I'm uh, trying to figure uh, figure out a reference, and then that way I'm 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 just sort of simplifying it down to its core essence, and then I can sort of unpack that uh, as I'm as I'm speaking the verse. Makes sense. Anything to make sure you're in the right book. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, let's move on to our listener question. This comes in from Luke from CMD. And so it's a Canadian Midwest district. I should uh, say that <laughs> entirely for folks who are not familiar with what CMD stands for. Uh, and uh, Luke is uh, planning on attending Great West. And he asks a question about homonyms. Uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I hope I am. Uh, so, Scott, do you want to kind of walk us through this one? Yeah, so so he was talking about unique words. Now let me pull up the materials. The first one is do, D-U-E. And so that is definitely a unique word from 1 Peter 5, 6. But D-O appears, if I did the search right, 56 times. So he was asking um, do time. Oh, yeah, you put that in the notes. Do time in 1 Peter 5, 6 and the word D-O, which appears 56 times. If you just jumped on the word do or the sound do on an interrogative question, could he consider that to be misleading and tricky? Because we could have do what or do away with what. And I didn't think so because I don't think the point at which a quizzer jumps on a question can be a basis for um, calling it misleading. Because here, a quizzer could have just waited longer, and that would have disambiguated the question. And there's a million examples, homonyms and non-homonyms, of that. The examples that we're talking about, like with cleansing rights and inheritance rights, is where both can be written as, the, uh, as a question of the exact same like length and sound. Like Everything about them sounds identical. So type, length, sound, it's all identical, and there would be no way for the quizzer to distinguish between them. And this is kind of an interesting basis because almost never do we use whether the quizzer can tell the difference as a basis for something for like writing a certain kind of question or not for example if there's two chapter reference unique words in a, two chapter unique words in a chapter one of which would be a multiple answer and one of which would not well we cannot use that as a reason so actually sorry there would be chapter verse reference words in that chapter we can't use the fact that one would be a multiple answer and one wouldn't to write them as chapter-only references because the quizzer could tell the difference based on the type, right? Um, but in, in this case, it's um, the quizzer wouldn't be able to tell the difference, which means we would consider it to be an invalid question on the cleansing rights and inheritance rights. But in this do and do away with, it just happens to be that if a quizzer jumps on one syllable – it is a homonym at that point, but that's not the full question for one of the two possible questions. So I would not consider that to be misleading or tricky at all. If the word DO happened to be a global unique word, then I would consider it to be the exact same situation as cleansing rights and inheritance rights. Yeah, I completely agree. I think a question is either valid or invalid and therefore challengeable or unchallengeable. unchallengeable. I don't know. 
non-challengeable based entirely on the entirety of the question and the answer uh, on the card or the paper or in CBQZ or whatever it happens to be. Uh, if, If somebody jumps too early on a reference for a quote question and gets the incorrect verse, the, the question itself is still completely valid. Um, it's entirely based on the fullness of the card. But that being said, of course, you know, if if in the fullness of the question, it cannot be accurately answered or therefore is tricky or misleading, then uh, then, yeah, I, I definitely think it's challengeable and uh, should be thrown out. I do think it's an interesting point, though, because one point that he makes is, an, an average quizzer, or maybe the majority of quizzers, may not have any idea that DUE is a unique word and would be c- quite confused or at least not know what to answer if they jumped on just that sound. But that that kind of reality is embedded in lots of places, right? A quizzer could jump on a half syllable on a quote question, and they know that one verse that starts with that sound in that chapter is either key with designated as key within their district or is by far the best choice as a keepers. And that's just information that they know, but it's not, it's not necessarily, it's not information that we're requiring everyone to know for a question to be not tricky. It is just information that some quizzers can do the work to know, to give themselves an advantage. Right. I see tricky or misleading in the context of assume that you hear the entirety of the question. You don't see the question, but you hear the entirety of the question accurately and you have the entire uh, uh, material perfectly memorized in your head, right? So like this, this ideal of perfect memorization and you hear the complete card or, uh, or a question as written on the card and you hear it accurately. If in that context, you have the opportunity to answer the question correctly, not by random luck, but by saying like it cannot it can only be this one answer then i think the the question's fine if there is more than one way to answer the question then i think it becomes invalid yep and as always i try to make the bar for calling a otherwise valid question trickier misleading to be quite a high bar but i do think questions that because of the homonym nature make them completely ambiguous to another one or two questions that would definitely meet that bar yeah. Homonyms are one of those weird situations where you, if you see the card versus hear the card, uh, then that, that actually makes a difference, right? So like a homonym where you can see the question text, uh, makes it unambiguous, but when you hear it, it becomes ambiguous. Um, that's, uh, those are the sort of really the only time when the homonyms sort of come into play. And that's why when I was a Quizmaster, I made sure to know when there was an interrogative question that had an interrogative word as the first word, but, <clears throat> but it was a word from the text, because I would read that very different than I would an interrogative word that we've inserted into the text, and that's information to the quizzer. And so if I read it the other way, I would consider that to be a very misleading thing that I've done. And a good example is from early in Hebrews, there's a verse that is, starts, what is man, that you are mindful of him. And so I made sure to know that that was a word in the text, and I would just read it as, what is man that you are mindful of him? And not like, what is man that you are mindful of him? Um, And yeah, I think there are lots of places like that where you have to be very aware of how you're reading it so as not to mislead the quizzers because all they're going off of is how it sounds and not what it looks like. 
That's very interesting. I kind of take the, a different approach there. Maybe I'm wrong here, but I try to read them consistently regardless of whether the what is part of the question uh, or just an interrogative uh, slapped in as a placeholder. Uh, I sort of feel like I I need to be as consistent as possible. And then it's up to the quizzer to understand like, oh, that's part of the, the question or that's the interrogative. I think in, in English, we pronounce the same word with many different inflections based on usage and i try to do the exact same thing when i'm quiz mastering yeah i can see that but i don't know i'd have to give that a try i mean i've certainly so far been just trying to remain as consistent as possible but uh i'd have to think about that one there are it's pretty rare that there's an interrogative word in the material that's not i mean i guess even what is mainly mindful of and listen to man that you care for him that is a question right so most often in the material it is a question itself so you're going to read it with pretty much the exact same inflection and tone and all of that. Like, why are you doing this to me? You're going to read that the exact same. But I think for like a who interrogative, the sound will often be a lot different than just reading a the word who that is embedded in the material. Hmm. Okay. Well, with that said, let's move on to uh, to our second listener question. This comes from Matthew, who hails from the uh, PNW or Pacific Northwest uh, District, which is our district. And his question is as follows. What are some tips you can give to a key verse quizzer on quizzing at Great West? Uh, and so, of course, we need to clarify what a key verse quizzer is for folks who are in a district not like PNW. Uh, so uh, some districts, not all, but some districts will publish what they call a key verse list, or they may, might come in a few different varieties of, of title and so forth. But in PNW, we have traditionally published what we call a key verse list, which are the the verses in the material that we stipulate up front are the ones that we feel qualify to stand alone, be spiritually significant, and so on and so forth. And I know there's a lot of argument to say, well, like every verse is spiritually significant. And sure, I, I agree. But looking at the sort the sort of like the 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 part of the rule book that's or focusing on the part of the rule book that's about, you know, versus standing alone uh it, on there. Uh with that that sort of is like the key thing that we look at for putting these key verses list together. And therefore, these are the verses that are eligible for uh, key type questions. So quotes, finish the verses and, and all of the various uh, related types thereof. And so for some folks within PNW, what they tend to do at PNW is they tend to uh, memorize some, not all, but they tend to focus on the key verse list rather than necessarily memorizing everything. And not everybody does this, but a few uh, quizzers do this. And what ends up happening is they tend to suffer a little bit on interrogatives and say chapter references and so forth, but they tend to do significantly better on quotes and finish the verses and so forth. Now that works fine to some degree as a strategy within PNW, but there are certain limits to it. Uh, and certainly it fails as a strategy when you exit PNW because other key verse lists are different, right? Uh, if, a, if a district has a key verse, it'll not necessarily match PNWs. And in some cases, the districts will quiz without a key verse. And at internationals, they don't have a, a, you know, a stipulated key verse list. I mean, there's always 
really a theoretical keyverse list everywhere you go because a keyverse list is the list of verses that have questions that are uh, that have quotes or finish the verse question types written upon them. Those essentially become a sort of inf an inferred uh, key verse list, versus list. Uh, but of course, if you don't know what the key versus list is, you don't have necessarily the speed advantage at a great West or an internationals or with a different district that doesn't have the same key versus list as P and W uses. So what Matthew's asking here is if you focused your energy at the district level in P and W on the key versus list, how do you transition that uh, and what are some tips that you can do to go from where you are now in PNW to being, you know, effective at Great West? So with that said, Scott, are, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, so there are many different ways to go here. So if you are quizzing within a district that has a published Keyverse list, and if you want to be very competitive on Keyverse questions, so finish and quote questions, then you will be constructing an alphabetical list of all the ways that those verses start so that you know, on average, how many syllables you can jump on and get most of them right. And I'm, I'm being a little vague because I don't know if you are aiming for 98% accuracy or 70% accuracy or, or what. But that alphabetically sorted list of finished questions is paramount, because, especially on, say, finish this or finish these two verses. There's probably not more than 20 uh, and so knowing, oh, I can jump on a half syllable and know every single one, that's massive because the jumping speed is very, very competitive on those specialty types. Now, if you're transitioning then to a place with either a different published list or an unpublished list, there are a few ways to go about it. One is to make your own study list that is attempting to guess what questions you will be asked at the meet. So this is what I expect quizzers at the internationals level are doing. So they will comb through the, the CMA club list uh, or whatever it's called and maybe some keyverse lists from other districts and compare it to their district and just see like, hey, these verses appear on all of them. So maybe 60% of the verses appear on all of these lists that I've looked at. So those are really, really good bets. And then they kind of pick and choose the rest and, and develop their own hybrid list to study from. Now that's a lot of work and it's definitely worth it for a meet like internationals whether it's worth it for a meet like great west that's up to you right how important is it to you to, to do well at a meet like that now if you're planning on or in the running for internationals maybe it pays to just do that work now and be very competitive at both great west and hope that you make internationals and then you have the list ready to go so that's one way to go and then you can be very assured when you're jumping like you've done the work to try to figure out what verses are going to be selected as key verses and by the way this is why i have such a pet peeve about the key verse list we all quizzers have to go off of is what the rule book says is a key verse and so if there's people writing questions completely ignoring what the rule book says then you're you're kind of baiting and switching the quizzers now there's there's totally interpretation available there but um, I mean, the rule book says a verse has to be spiritually significant and stand on its own, and it's definitely saying not all the verses do this. Otherwise, we wouldn't even put that in the rule book. Um, and so I think it behooves question writers and quizzers alike to just try to figure out for yourselves what do you think spiritually significant means? What do you think um, stands on its own means? What do you think the, the point of a finish this is versus a finish the verse? Why would you use one type versus the other? And I think those are great questions for everyone to be asking. And 
I loved seeing the quizzers that wrestled with all those questions and did a really good job making a list do well at the meet. I think that was really cool. But back to Matthew's question. So you can do all that work or you can say, I don't, I don't want to spend all of that time. And once you make the decision that you're not going to spend all of that time, you have to be ready to go to Great West and jump at a speed as if you had done all that work. Because otherwise, you aren't going to win any jumps at all. You know, most finished questions are going to be syllable and a half, definitely under two syllables, and most quote questions are going to be jumped on before the complete reference is finished. And you just have to be ready to jump at those speeds and... If it is a, a verse start that you don't know or a verse reference that you just don't know, you have to be okay with getting an error on it. And that's like, to me, the most important thing is once you show up at a meet, you have to, you have to be okay with the amount of errors that your material knowledge and study warrant. You just have to be okay with it. Because if, if you are underprepared for a question type, and you jump according to that underpreparedness, you just will win zero jumps. Now, what I would say is kind of a, an in-between study approach is take your PNW list, grab a list or two from another district or the CMA list, and say, what are some verse starts that are in that list that are not in mine? So let me, let me hop into Second Peter 1. So there's a verse that starts, there's a finish these two that starts with for this. So if there's a, a finish these two from a different district's key verse list that starts with for this, I would just ignore it. I would just say, hey, I already know one from our district. I know it's awesome. If I jump on this in, at Great West, I'm going to guess this one. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and that's fine. But if you find a, a finish these two that starts with a completely different word from any of the finish these two verses in PNW, say, hey, maybe I want to memorize this verse. So maybe you add between 10 and 20 verses from other key verse lists that start in completely different ways from any verse on the PNW list. And you're just kind of trying to fill in gaps. Because when you're at meets like Great West Internationals, there are tons and tons of times where you will just jump on something and have to guess between 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10 options. And if you're doing that, you, it really doesn't matter if you know all 10. You only get to guess one. <laughs> and so that that's why, to me... You already know tons of stuff. There's a good chance that a bunch of those are going to be asked to Great West. So you already know that stuff. And knowing other stuff that starts the same way isn't really a help to you. So focus on stuff that starts in totally different ways or maybe randomly in Hebrew 7. None of the first 10 verses are, or 15 verses are key within PNW. Try to pick which one you think is most key and memorize it just to kind of fill in some of those gaps. But really you're just... I would say you're you're either going all the way and really digging in and making your own hybrid study list and memorizing everything on it, or you're kind of picking and choosing and filling in the gaps for, um, for verses that start differently. Yeah, I totally agree. The So I, I would start with Scott's uh, example and Scott's suggestions first. Um, as a counter to it, um, or a counter idea to it, the other option I would throw out there, and I would definitely put this in sort of third place behind Scott's two uh, primary uh, moves here, is consider trying to pick out a couple of older chapters, older as, as in like earlier chapters, 
and memorize them fully if you don't have them fully memorized already. But I would only do that up to a particular point prior to Great West. So, and I'm not sure exactly where that's going to be. That's going to be a little bit different, I think, based on who you are, the way that you study, the way you, that you review and so forth. But if you're like, you know, four weeks ahead of Great West, and let's say you have most of Hebrews chapter six memorized, but you still have like, you know, maybe 20% of it not memorized or something like that. I would spend the effort to memorize the the fullness of chapter six because it gives you access to reference questions that you would otherwise not have access to. Uh, certainly with the same level of clarity or speed that you would at your 80% of six uh, sort of thing. So I think a way to kind of shift is, you know, yeah, as a Kiever specialist, in P&W, you're focusing on key question types, but I would I would look f at Great West at the option of expanding your capability to other question types. And I think references are really, especially chapter references, are a really under-grabbed uh, question type that if you've got, you know, a 60, 70, 80% of a chapter memorized, you go ahead and get the rest of the chapter there and you start at getting more access to more question types and you kind of broaden yourself that way. But that being said, I would stop that practice call it two weeks before the meet. I'm not sure. I mean, and again, this is really fuzzy, right? It's, it's going to be different for everybody, but at some point prior to the meet, you should stop memorizing new material and just go through and rehearse what you do have memorized, uh, recite it, talk, you know, talk it into a, a tape recorder or a, you know, a cell phone and record and play it back to you. Um, say the verses over and over, make, you know, correct for reference mistakes, make sure that you have your references tied to the verses correctly, that kind of thing. Uh, quote to a friend and, and listen to your friend quote, that kind of thing. That's, that stuff is really great for sort of long-term activating the memorization work that you've already done. And in a lot of ways, I think that could be a really important way of preparing for Great West. Yeah, I like the totally different way of thinking about it, right? I think Keeper's questions are the quickest path to scoring a decent amount, but as the competition level increases, that quickly goes away. Um, it might still be there because of just how many there are with the new question type requirements, but especially once you get to Great West, you could have six quizzers on the stage or eight quizzers on the stage jumping at one syllable on finish questions, and every every one of them could know every single verse in the material and still the majority of them are not going to score well. And so that could very well be the case. And if you, as Griffin said, I already know 70% of Hebrews 5 or Hebrews 8 or something. If I just memorize the rest of the verses, I can get any chapter reference or chapter verse reference from this chapter. And you get to hear the chapter number before you decide whether to jump or not. Like, that's a great option. But I always loved the conclusion of Meet 5 because now... There's no more new material. And I think for a lot of people, review is neglected. It might be boring. And to me, I was like, this is where I can zoom ahead of people. I might not be super fast at memorizing new material, but if I just have the will to go and review material when there is no new material, and that's all I have to do, to me it was just polishing. And it was it was fun to think about, like, I'm just polishing this up so that if I ever jump on this verse or this phrase, I know I will not make an error. And... I'm sure everyone has chapters that they're like, oh, I hope I don't get a question from this chapter, right? I hope I don't get a quote from this chapter or a CVR. If I get a CVR from this chapter, I don't want to jump on it. And once Meet 5 is concluded, that's prime time 
to go and get rid of those anxieties so that you can just be aggressive and score, you know, make great jumps and nail questions. Yes, indeed. And I, the, in review, there are a lot of tricks here. Quoting is a good one. Listening to the material is a good one. But how you quote can also be a great practice tool or a hang-up, right? So when you quote, it's very easy to just start and quote the material. But I would caution you against doing that. Instead, insert the reference every time you're quoting a verse. And once you can get through a chapter uh, fairly confidently uh, from you know verse 1 to the end... I would quote it backwards, uh, start, you know, in, in second Peter chapter one, start with verse 21, then go to 20, 19, 18, 17, and so forth and work your way down. And doing that is shockingly harder <laughs> than quoting it, uh, in a forwards, uh, uh, pathway. And of course, in doing it backwards like that, you know, it hurts my brain for a little bit, but I end up memorizing or not so much memorizing cause I've already got it memorized by quoting it backwards. I end up really activating the material a whole lot better. And especially if I'm doing it with references, I, I feel a whole lot more confident going straight to say verse 11 and getting 11, you know, in the right spot, as opposed to quoting 10 when it's, when the question is calling for 11 or something like that. Yeah, you're right. I, I have not talked about quoting backwards as much as, or at all. I think it's one of the absolute gold mines for quizzers that want to know the full material and want to jump on reference questions because ideally the saying the reference or hearing the reference is your trigger for recalling the verse but i think most often the easier recall is the ending of the previous verse and by quoting it backwards you completely sever that right you have you are never saying the ending of the previous verse when you are trying to recall this verse and it makes it makes your mind work really, really hard, and I think it exposes how much you rely on the flow of the material and how that previous verse ends to recall the next verse, when really you just want the reference to be all that's needed to recall, and recall fast. Yeah, indeed. Well, and then, let's see, other sorts of tips that I would throw in here about, you know, it, it's not necessarily a Kiever's quizzer, but any quizzer preparing for Great West. Uh, review, 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 uh, and then after that, review again. But then kind of take it easy for a couple of days before the meet, right? So we're departing, most of us are going to be departing on Thursday uh, for the meet that starts Friday afternoon, evening time. So, you know, I would kind of take it casual. Uh, I mean, still read the material, listen to the material if you have it uh, on audio or something like that. But maybe kind of throttle back a little bit on like a Tuesday uh, or maybe even the Wednesday beforehand or something like that. So give your brain a rest for a couple of days. You're going to get, I mean, realistically, you're going to be tired when you get to the meet because we're going to be traveling for Thursday and Friday to get there. We're going to cross a border. We're going to stay overnight in a hotel. You're not going to get the best sleep in your life. You know, that's, you know, you're away from your home life. You're, you know, things are going to be different. Your brain is going to be kind of taxed uh, and kind of tired when you start the first quiz. Uh, so give yourself permission to be as rested as possible, both physically and mentally before 
we depart on Thursday. And then, of course, you know, if you want to take a, a, a little bit of time, we've got many hours on the road. So if you want to take an hour and just kind of read through the material uh, on Friday as we're crossing into Canada or something like that, then that's probably a useful bit of time. But I wouldn't try to binge study or binge review, you know, within a few days of, of the quiz meet. Yeah, it helps to know what are your what are your keys and what are you willing to do. I think once you get really close to Quizmean, if there are chapters you don't know, well, it's no use worrying about that or trying to cram them in. Just solidify what you do know. Um, similarly, if you're two hours before the meet starts, quoting a bunch of chapters probably isn't going to do a whole lot. But I always had kind of a cheat sheet of my keys. So I was a reference quizzer, so I would have my cheat sheet, like, these are the chapters where I can jump super fast, and these are the chapters that have 20, 30, 40 verses, and I can't. And I just, like, solidify them so that as soon as I hear that book name and chapter number, I know the speed that I'm going to attack that chapter at. So, like, those were my quick keys as a reference quizzer, but if you're a, a key verse quizzer, maybe your quick keys are, I don't know, the handful of finished thises that are a key at a quarter syllable, or... Um, the chapters you want to jump really, really fast at or the chapters that you want to stay away from. For interrogatives, uh, maybe there are a handful of unique words that you're positive are going to be at the start of a question and you just want to make sure that you know them. So I, I think having that kind of cheat sheet and quick tune-up is helpful because it will get you into a good mindset and keep your mind fresh on the stuff that you are best at. But as Griffin said, quoting chapters upon chapters or trying to memorize new material in the hours or the day before a quiz meet probably isn't going to be the best route. Right. I would sort of treat it as a really great West. I would treat the same as internationals, the same as I would any district meet in terms of your pattern for preparation. I mean, the intensity is certainly higher at great West and is even higher still at internationals, but I think the pattern remains the same. And I would, I would use an analogy of, of, of a pattern you want to be something similar to like if you were in track and field or if you were in cross country or something or some sort of sport and you are preparing physically for a sport meet that or, or, or a competition that you're going to. So you would prepare by uh, physically working out, you know, very, very hard the, you know, preceding weeks before the meet. Uh, but then a few days before the meet, you would kind of slow down a little bit, right? You'd, you'd go for a light jog. You might do a little cardio, that kind of stuff, but you're not really going to intensely train. You're not going to try to bulk up your muscles uh, 48 hours before you go into a, a some sort of a physical, you know, sports-based competition or something like that. Instead, you're just going to do enough exercise to keep limber and to kind of keep a, sort of a sustaining mode, a let your muscles heal and be in the best possible shape, the best possible energy state that you can be when you start the competition. But what you'll do right at the competition or just prior to it is you'll warm up, right? So I'm not suggesting that, you know, say Wednesday before Great West, you sort of throttle back to zero and you don't do anything until question number one uh, on the stage at Great West. Rather, kind of throttle back, give yourself time to mentally kind of recoup that energy, stay fresh on the material, you know, stay familiar with the material, don't try to memorize anything more. But then once we get up to Great West, uh, we're, you know, the, the PNW teams will have a couple of practice uh, quizzes together, and that'll be a way to kind of warm up and get yourself ready for the competition. So very, very analogous to kind of a sporting event. 
Absolutely. I really like that uh, I really like that analogy where you will throttle down right before the event, but then you'll you'll need some sort of warm up. And I always thought that the amount of focus and precision needed to excel at a meet like Great West where you have to jump at very, very precise speeds and then answer questions um, on with less information than you probably have had at any point during the year. It just requires tons of mental energy and output. And so because of that, I put an, a large emphasis on taking breaks, even more so than at the district level. So at the district level, maybe I'd dabble in other question types if I didn't have any right by question 10 or other things like that. Whereas at Great West, that's all kind of out the window. And if I'm jumping on maybe references and multiple answers, if I heard a question that wasn't one of my types, I really just kind of took a breath and maybe would close my eyes and retain some energy for the next time that one of my specialties came up because you have to be so good at a question type to consistently score at Great West. Yeah, very true. All right. Well, with that said, let's move on to a couple of the other topics we have on our agenda. I wanted to kind of mention a little bit about the Presbyterian system uh, that I had hinted at in the show introduction space. And to just kind of put it really shortly, uh, some of the one of the key things that kind of jumped out at me is as a big difference, a huge difference between our two programs is they compete uh uh, in uh, quizzes of two teams instead of quizzes of three teams. Uh, and then one of the other major differences is they, they have seat lights um, or, or I think triggers actually not seat lights, but they have basically triggers, but their system is designed not to capture only the first person who triggers in, but it's actually they're recording the top four people who trigger in. And the reason they do that is because the first person to trigger in gets the question, they go up and they attempt to answer. But if they err, the second person who triggered in actually gets to an attempt to answer. And then apparently the third and the fourth uh, in succession, if each person uh, errs and there therefore are not toss up questions. Essentially the toss up is just the question that was asked, trying to gauge for a correct uh, answer from say the second or third or fourth jump that may have been happening for a particular question. So that's definitely really weird from a CMA quizzing perspective. And so just as kind of a thought experiment, Scott, what do you think would be the sort of the implications? Not, I mean, certainly we're not going to be implementing anything remotely like this in PNW or in CMA in general, but in terms of like, if a quizzer were quizzing with CMA and then switched over and quizzed in uh, the Presbyterian system or vice versa, what do you think would be kind of the mental and practical implications of that sort of change? So I actually love this setup. If you, if I hearken back to, I don't know what we called it, the summit at Port Orchard of question difficulty and quiz generation. The, the that, great ecumenical council of Port Orchard. Yeah, where we kind of decided that trying to assign some sort of question difficulty to a question and making sure that there's some sort of consistency quiz to quiz so that one team and quizzer set doesn't face like really hard questions and then another one faces really easy questions. We kind of decided that that was a, a lot of effort for a really, really imperfect result when already there were so many things that influenced question difficulty that we had no control over. The, the two being jumping speed 
and where in the quiz specific question types showed up, right? So I think the where in the quiz specific question types showed up, that amount of variability is largely offset if we adopt this sort of four quizzers jump, and if there's an error, it goes to the next quizzer that jumped, right? So let's hypothetically assume that every team has a specialist for each question type. Well, if the first four questions of the quiz are reference questions, and they're all gotten by the same quizzer, well, I mean, good on them, right? They, they won the jump, got them all right. But it really just puts the other two teams way behind the eight ball because they have a couple quizzers that are largely useless now. Where, and actually, the way I've said it, I could change it, and that quizzer who won the four jumps, they don't even have to get them all right. It still renders those other reference quizzers largely useless. But in this setup, if you happen to err on it, one of those other specialists will have a chance at the type. And I think that that really smooths the fact that where specialty questions occur in a quiz may be clumped. Because as we know, randomness is sticky, meaning even though where the question types come up in a quiz is completely random, that does not mean that you won't get three finish the verse questions in a row. In fact, it means that you probably will, given enough quizzes. And this really just smooths that out, where if someone makes an error on it, it will go to the next quizzer that jumped. And I, I really like that, because I do think that we have points, negative points if you make an error, and your team has to sit out. And I think those are really good penalties, and they keep the jumping speeds down. But it can still be, like on a multiple answer, I I think we just won't have to have one now. It could be that it's a really big thing for a team to just win that jump because at the very least it means that the other teams won't get points for a correct one on that one. And they're willing to sit out a question if they happen to get it wrong, but they know they have a chance of getting it right. Whereas in this, you don't know that, right? You know that, hey, even if I get it wrong, the other teams will have a chance and they'll have all this information from my attempt. And to me, that's a a really big deterrent and a nice deterrent to jumping fast if you aren't if you don't have a high probability of getting the question right if that makes sense i think now we do have penalties for you know that are, that serve as a deterrent of jumping fast if you aren't really confident or prepared for a question type but in this setup where it would the same question would then pass to other competitors i think is a really cool deterrent yeah very cool well, let's uh, move on a little bit to some Great West updates. So I have some interesting news. Uh, it turns out, so I've been in, in pretty regular contact with the district coordinators from the other two districts that comprise uh, Great West. Great West is a combination of three districts, Pacific Northwest, Canadian Midwest, and Western Canada. And I've been in, uh, you know, conversations with uh, my other district coordinators uh, from, or what are they called? Um, compatriots? That's not the right word. Parallels? My cutouts? That's not it. I don't know. Whatever they're called. The other people. And uh, we have agreed that for the upcoming Great West we are this year, we are going to be using the P&W official question set in all of its sort of constantly edited glory and so forth. So a lot of the... Um, uh, discussions and arguments that we've been having over the last several podcasts about certain questions that are in the official set. Well, that's showing up at Great West. 
Um, I'm also sharing a practice set of, uh, of questions with both districts um, so that districts, if they want to shift over their practices to kind of the, the whatever style differences may exist in P&W that they're not necessarily used to, they'll have an opportunity to practice uh, with those different styles. That way there isn't any sort of big shocking change moving from, say, one particular style of question to another. That being said, I think the P&W question set is probably as devoid of any individual style as possible because there are, what, like one, two, six, eight, eight editors, I think, in the list, um, and probably one, two, three, at least three, if not four, fairly active editors uh, of the content. Um, is that a fair assessment, Scott, from your memory? I'm not sure, but I do know that there were multiple writers who wrote questions for the entire material, and one of them was me, and I just contributed my set from eight years ago and then had to kind of update it for the new version. But that set from eight years ago was already a conglomeration of multiple writers, and so that conglomeration of multiple writers was only one of multiple written sets to begin with. So already we've got many cooks in the kitchen in a good way, and then there was lots of editors who each got a portion of the material, and then edited all question types within that portion of the material. So it wasn't like, oh, I edited all multiple answers, so Scott's style of writing multiple answers is really shown throughout the material. It's like, oh, no, um, I just edited Hebrews 7, 1 Peter 5. And that's the other thing is the, the, the amounts of the material that I edited were not contiguous. So there are, I think, five random chapters or four random chapters. And so that's all spread out. And then you throw into the fact we have maybe eight quiz masters who have quiz mastered at various times. And so they have quiz mastered at various times and in various ways. But they, mm. uh, they get to just mark questions, right, for many reasons. They can say, hey, this is invalid, or I just don't like this. Well, any quiz master who marks a question, it then gets discussed, right? So maybe John marks it and says, hey, I don't like this. Well, then Jeremy and Kendra and Griffin and Micah and Tony and I are – I'll get to say, like, oh, do we like this? Do we think it should remain? And because of that, it's borderline impossible for any one style to get, like, pushed, right? Because everyone has a say. And if there's a, a question that someone just hates, like, we'll often just say, hey, you know, it might be valid. But if you think it's terrible, we'll just ditch it. We've got 5,000 questions or 6,000 questions or whatever. Yeah. Well, so at Great West coming up this year, they do not have reliable uh, Wi-Fi at the camp. In fact, uh, very not reliable Wi-Fi. And so we can't use CBQZ live uh, in that context. Um, we can use it in terms of a material reference and that sort of thing. Uh, but so what we're going to do is we're going to pre-build the quizzes, um, and I'm responsible for making sure that happens. And then I'll be sending those over to Glenn, and Glenn is going to – Glenn's one of the district coordinators from the other districts. Glenn is going to be sorting and scheduling uh, those quizzes, so there'll be a, a, a sort of a separation of duties there. So I'll be building the quizzes, but I will have no idea what order they come in or, or what rooms they're going to be showing up in. And then Glenn is going to be sorting and scheduling. And we will not be doing synchronized uh quiz rooms. So in terms of, you know, quiz room one versus quiz room two will not be uh, using the same questions. So, you know, quiz number one 
in quiz room one and quiz number one in quiz room two will actually be using different questions. And so uh, in that way, there's there's no advantage uh, to listening in one room and then moving to another or anything like that. I mean, not that any of that was, you know, happening in previous meets or anything like that, but it's uh, just sort of another way to, you know, keep everything uh, above board and, and, and good there. So I already mentioned the practice set that was going to happen. Oh, right. And then the other thing that we're going to do is, so I've been mentioning on a few of the previous podcast episodes that I'm in the process of rewriting CBQZ and converting it into a much more robust and extensible platform. And it's going to be called quiz sage, uh, S A G E. And, um, so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to get the district coordinators uh, together uh, and have a little district coordinator powwow at Great West. And we're going to talk about QuizSage. And essentially, I'm going to grab their brains and try to, you know, suck out the wisdom from their brains about, you know, kind of like what kind of functionality that they're wanting, what kind of uh, accessy sort of things and, and sort of things that they want the QuizSage to be able to do so that I can code it in the way that works best for everybody. That's awesome. I think both those districts are very organized and very technologically inclined, so their input is worth a ton. And I love the separation of duties going on with the questions because while there's really never an assumption that anything untoward is happening with the question sets, I think because there's such a big basis for the competition and it being fair that when all of the leaders involved are so publicly separating duties, taking pains to keep question sets private and random and all this stuff, it just puts everything at ease, even if there was only 0.00001% suspicion that something might be a little bit off. I think it's just amazing for the competition when pains like that are taken and then everyone just has a wonderful competition. Yes, indeed. So very much looking forward to that. And of course, uh, I do want to remind folks that we are nearing the registration deadline for the upcoming next meet uh, in PNW. And I don't remember the dates straight offhand, but it's going to be down in uh, Dallas, Oregon. So if your church has not yet registered, you want to get on that. Uh, one thing I did want to talk a little bit about in terms of Bible quizzing, uh, since uh, this has been in the news a fair bit, is the whole uh, COVID-19 so-called coronavirus, which I'm, I don't know, it's not really the coronavirus because we have coronaviruses every year, but it's a very specific, uh, you know, COVID-19, or if you prefer the original co uh, 2019 NCOV uh, virus strain that's been going around. Uh, there's potentially some implications for Bible quizzing here because we certainly don't want to be adding to the pandemic crisis and we want to be responsible. We also don't want to be, you know, hyperbolic or, you know, instill panic or anything like that. So for right now, just be aware that uh, I and other quiz leaders are keeping a very close eye on what's going on with COVID-19 and we are tracking what's going on uh, very, very carefully. Uh, please do your best to maintain good hygiene habits, you know, wash your hands frequently, 
Uh, don't uh, avoid, you know, handshakes and hugs and so forth if you can. Uh, try to limit down exposure as best you can. It's generally speaking going to, if you do catch it, it's going to probably be mild uh, for you, especially if you're a quizzer, especially if you're a quizzer, if you're a youth, uh, you may not even notice. You may actually catch it and be asymptomatic. Uh, but for folks who are older and uh, folks who have any sort of medical conditions, it uh, can be it can be quite serious. And so we need to all do our part to you know, reduce the spread of the virus and to reduce the, you know, possibility of having kind of a, a health crisis where everybody sort of gets sick all the bad about the same time. We want to try to spread out that that sickness curve as best we can. So in terms of the Dallas meet, you know, we're still on, but, um, you know, please do your part. If you're starting to feel symptomatic, uh, please do the right thing and consider not attending the Dallas meet. And then the same thing goes for Great West. I mean, certainly we're going to have folks from all over uh, the Pacific Northwest and all over basically Western and Central Canada, basically showing up uh, together. And so what a wonderful way to spread the virus. Uh, so let's not do that. Uh, so just be kind of self-aware and use self-discipline in terms of all of that stuff. All right. Well, with that said, I want to remind everybody that, of course, we love hearing from you. If you have any sort of questions, comments, concerns, nagging doubts, fears, paranoia, whatever it happens to be, we would love to hear from you. I very much appreciate Luke and Matthew for emailing us uh, their questions. That's awesome. We'd love to hear more questions that you guys have, and we'd love to hear from the rest of you guys as well out there. Please email us your questions and comments at iq at cbqz.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter. We are at Inside Quizzing. And with that said, I will thank you all. And thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening, everybody. 